Our modern Western culture places little to no value on the power of our nightly dreams to inspire, shift, and reorganize our lives. This podcast demands a deep reconsideration of the role dreams play on our path to a more vital and meaningful life. The following is living proof of the life-affirming power of dreams to affect a change and redirect the trajectory of our inner and outer lives. These are the dreams that shape us. The Dreams That Shape Us podcast presents story after story that prove how meaningful dreams are and their tremendous value for shaping our lives so we can be our best. Oftentimes that means healing our hurts and seeing ourselves as we actually are, the proverbial hard look in the mirror. For this episode, we explore some painful experiences in the dreams that help to heal the hurts and pick us up after we fall. Our guest is Erin Amundsen, a depth psychologist, teacher, and dream worker. She shares her experience of an abusive relationship and the cogent dream that summed up the situation in one powerful and telling image of a woman hiding inside a bottle. This conversation is painful at times, as Aaron and my co-host Stephen Ernenwein air their laundry and speak from a place of wounding they've both experienced. Their conversation also plums the wisdom and self-knowledge dreams can provide us so we can be better in our relationships by better understanding ourselves in relationships. Love gained and love lost brings out the best and worst in us. Guided by their dreams, Aaron and Steven show us that we can recover from our mistakes, do the inner work, and love the person we see looking back at us in the mirror. Only then can we give our best to the people closest to us. I'm co-host J.M. DeBoard, and I'll hand you over to Aaron and Stephen. Well, welcome today, Aaron. Really appreciate you being here to have this uh, conversation with me. It's it's quite a pressing issue at this point in our collective. So thank you for being so brave to share this incredible story with us. Yeah, thank you for the invitation, Steve. I love what you're doing uh, in this project, bringing dreams into the forefront of awareness, intuition, and, and healing in the world. So I'm happy to be part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we haven't talked for quite a while, and uh, I'm pretty stoked to have another conversation with you. I don't know if you remember how we met. Yeah, it well my memory of it was that we were both commenting on some posts about dream work on Facebook and we kind of got into a Facebook comment conversation, you know, one of those actually rich conversations that um don't tend to happen as often anymore. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure I can't remember exactly how that how that worked, but I I do know that either Either we did have a, a kind of back and forth on a comment or I know I had posted something around that same time of uh, starting my own dream groups. And I know that you out of very few other people were like, yeah, let's get on a call. I'll tell you anything I know or anything that can help. And I was just amazed that somebody was willing to be so forthright with how they run their groups and 
was willing to give me so much great information. So this like feels like my <laughs> payment back to you in some regards. Yeah, I'll take the the reciprocity for sure. <laughs> and um, yeah. always happy to, to pay it forward, especially on a topic that I'm so passionate about myself. For sure. Awesome. Uh, so today, uh, to begin how I've been usually beginning these interviews is to give the listeners an idea of kind of when this was physically within the year. Uh, so mm -hmm. I ask you, uh, what season were you in, like physically, when you had this dream? Mm -hmm. Do you, Are you able to remember that? Yeah, it was the spring of 2016. Interesting. Okay. Um, and then uh, my second question would be, do you have an idea of uh, kind of what season you were in mythically or like emotionally at that time? Oh, yeah. I guess I would describe it as um, a resistance to the treasure and reward of all of my hard work. So it was active, well, subconsciously actively resisting the harvest mm. of my investments, which is a, in itself, I think, a fascinating concept to dig into in the psyche. For sure. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So would you, uh, would you refer to that? I mean, it's a harvest. So it was, is that fall time for you? I mean, in terms of the seasons, that is the fall, but in terms of like the season of my life, uh, I had started a private practice. I had momentum and success there. Um, I was definitely, you know, building and a lot of my dreams around that time were calling me into further depths and um, mm. indicating that I was heading toward even more abundance and success. And, you know, for me, I think that the, that joyful state of being has been sometimes difficult to not only celebrate, but accept. And that's something yeah. that, that I've been working through. Um, so some part of me wants to keep me safe by sabotaging the, the good life at times. Yeah, I know how that is. That's pretty much how I operate as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It really is because I think uh, most of life gears us to, I don't know, I feel like we get sufficiently broken down over the course of our life that we have a really hard time when it comes to actually like accepting beautiful things and uh, rewards and I think we're so geared towards like expecting things to be constantly so hard and never getting a hand up on things that when we finally do it's kind of foreign and it feels weird and uncomfortable yeah yeah I think to some degree some of us are also maybe addicted to the challenge of life mm. you know, looking for the next great adventure and sometimes the adventure is in stillness, in the moment, in receiving the creation. I like that. Very cool. All right. So um, 
I think to begin this conversation, can you offer us like the lead up to the relationship that you had with your ex that paints the whole situation we'll, we'll be talking about here? Yeah. Um, you know, it was the season of my life of receiving and having um, built a successful private practice. And I had been single for five years at the time. And I think my desire mind just wanted a relationship. I uh, didn't want to be satisfied with what I had. (laughs) And looking back, I can see that the desire for a relationship was a pure distraction from, you know, finishing my creation at the time Mm -hmm. of my business. Um, but so I was having a lot of dreams about hosting retreats and leading large groups, um, spiritually and psychotherapeutically. Uh, and I I was developing those things and I just kind of got tired of it. I was kind of like a bratty kid who wasn't getting her way. I got Mm. tired of being alone, tired of having to follow through on the stuff that I, you know, should do tired I mean, it sounds odd to me now, but I was tired of being in the flow, I guess. Mm. Um, So that relationship was going to provide another spark of adventure for me. Interesting. Yeah. So that's kind of exactly what you just said a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so despite the warning signs from my dreams that were leading me away from developing a relationship, I was so primed and ready to respond to, you know, a line dangling in front of me that it was really easy. I was an easy target. I'll say, yeah, I was willing to start denying my intuition just to have what I wanted or what I thought I wanted. Right. So do you think, uh, so I guess in, in my understanding right now, do you think, uh, you're you're kind of flirting with this idea of wanting this relationship more than what your dreams are kind of showing you is where you're supposed to be going. Is that why the morning dreams started to happen? Because they're like, hey, we know what you're thinking right now. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely believe that's the case. Okay. Uh, I was out of alignment with myself. And when I wasn't able to catch myself, I think my subconscious started to give me more red flag, you know, red flag dreams. Wow. So that's really cool. I, from the write-up you gave me, I guess hearing you talk about it now, it, ma- it makes more sense. And it's very interesting that, I mean, there's obviously red flag, like warning signs and dreams that pr- came during your relationship. Uh, but that's really wild that they had started before you had even talked to him for the first time. <laughs> yeah, Man. I was getting red flags about my intentions. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, do you, just for the listener's sake, uh, do you have any just brief, if you could tell like one or two of them just very briefly, like kind of like what they look like or how they came about? Yeah, there's just the one that comes to mind first. Um, my subconscious was still exploring the idea of the healthy masculine and a, and a healthy relationship. And I had several dreams that were similar to this, but in this particular dream, I was in Seamboat Springs, Colorado on a a little getaway on my own. And I had gotten out of my car 
to walk to the place I was staying. And I was suddenly aware that I was surrounded by violent, dangerous men. Um, so I knew that I was in danger and I wasn't sure how I was going to get out of it. I just kept moving. And as I moved forward, I saw two very kind hearted, loving, compassionate men who were selling bread. They were selling baked goods and flower essences, very feminine stuff. Huh. <laughs> and I, I went to their bread stand and I knew that I would be safe from the, the violent men there. So these were sort of red flag dreams, I believe, showing me something about my own relationship to the masculine that, that was wanting to be addressed before getting into a relationship. Gotcha. Very interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So showing me there's still, there was like still danger in that realm for me. Right. Hmm. All right. Uh, let's stay on the, the topic of red flags for a moment more. I know you had hinted it in the write-up you had given me that you've been an advocate for this kind of work in the past. And I was curious if you could give our listeners kind of like what some actual red flags in an actual relationship would be like, or what, what, I guess, what are the red flags that someone should look for in a relationship as it's starting off? Oh gosh, that's such a great question. Um, I, I was just having a conversation with another friend of mine who recently went through this and I mean, the very first and most important red flag is if you realize that you are denying your own intuition. Uh, not everybody's able to recognize that, but for me, I was consciously aware that I was denying myself. Mm -hmm. um, so most important. Um, I think in terms of how like relationship dynamics in like any inconsistency of behavior, inconsistency of emotional input, any type of dismissive commenting. Um, so for example, if dream work is really important to me and I'm dating someone or I've met someone who scoffs at it and really puts it down. That's probably a red flag. Maybe not that this is a violent person, but it's not the right match for me. Right. Right. So any, any person's outright rejection of, um, personality traits or values, any kind of belittling or name calling. I mean, those are the more obvious ones. Uh, and th there are so many, and I, would say, you know, as a psychotherapist, I also know the brain chemistry that we all experience when we fall in love. And it's as dangerous as crack <laughs> to our system. So we're not thinking clearly. We're not seeing clearly. We will ignore red flags or just not even notice them because we're high. We are literally mm -hmm. doped up on love. So one of the practices that I recommend is a vetting process. And it sounds awkward to a lot, especially to a lot of women who get accused of overthinking things or, you know, um, 
being too needy a lot, but I would need someone new in my life to meet my family, to meet my friends relatively early on. Because those are the people who know me the best outside of myself, and they're going to know if I'm off kilter, even if I don't. Right. And I, you know, interestingly enough, I had some friends who had some pretty strong feelings about my ex and his character, and they didn't say anything because I didn't ask them. Hmm. And I didn't say anything to them because another red flag was, um, you know, don't talk to other people about our relationship. It's our private business. <laughs> so in retrospect, I found out that at least two of my friends had pretty significant concerns. Um, and most of us think we should mind our own business, right? So right. I encourage the opposite. Ask the people you know to look out for you in your relationships. I love that. That's actually, that is amazing because if you do bring someone home pretty early on and everybody's like, nope, (laughs) it would make you like really kind of reconsider what what you're doing there. And yeah, that's, that's great advice. I love that. Yeah. And let's bring this person home to your people. It doesn't have to be your family. If your family is not your people, then who are your people? Who do you trust? So I guess enter your ex. Uh, Do you want to tell a little bit about how this relationship began? And Sure. So this has all the trappings of a beautiful illusion. And uh, I say that because we met when we were preteens and he was my first kiss. Mm. So that romantic notion of a, a childhood love reconnected was such a strong pull and he actually you know used that as part of the lure um and did it very effectively so it was a matter of you know like a facebook reconnection and that that idea of a missed connection maybe and full circle um it was meant to be right and it, it took off like wildfire from there. I mean, it was a Facebook message that turned into a three-hour phone call that turned into nightly phone calls. Um, and red flag, you know, number 16 or whatever, a, a very obsessive feelings about the relationship. Hmm. And, and, and that that's tricky because that... The chemicals that we ingest, oxytocin can lead to that obsessive feeling. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. But for me, I know that an over-attachment, over-involvement is never a good sign. Yeah. And the, the momentum was very fast, which is another red flag. So, oh, we talked on the phone for three months maybe and then he moved in from another state Uh into my my home and it was you know when are we going to get married and do you want kids I mean it was all just lightning quick wow yeah yeah so the, the, the illusion had its allure and I think my 
addictive nature, my desire to get out of the discomfort of settling into something easy and good also played a role in, you know, this kind of relationship and the speed of things has the ability to take me out of myself, out of the present moment and very, very effectively. Yeah, I can, I can definitely relate to that a lot. Uh, I feel like every relationship I've been in, I've kind of like completely lost my head in and I think the relationship I'm in right now has been over 11 years. It's been the most solid and steadfast relationship I've ever been in. But every other one that I've ever been in has just been like a a whirlwind that I've just gotten so caught up in and totally lose myself in and become like a totally different person. And <laughs> I come out of it so like broken and weird and have so much to unpack. And uh, so I I definitely know how how it is to get swept up in that and to get and to, yeah, to not see the warning signs at all or to, or to see them and like still be so, so caught up in what's happening that you ignore them and you just think, Oh, well, (laughs) this is kind of what I want. Kind of not kind of. I'm I'm curious with you, um, you said your current relationship has shifted you out of that pattern. Do you think that is because you shifted something or is there a difference in, in your partner's qualities or maybe some of both? So the re- relationship that I had before Erica, uh, it was like a seventh month relationship and it was somebody that I had been crushing on for about two years before we dated. And it was like, Every every time she was single or I was single, the other was in a relationship and we always just kind of missed each other. And I thought, man, this is going to be one of those awful situations where we just never connect right. And finally, it did work. And I was living in Tennessee at the time and she was in New York where I was where my folks were from. And so there was a long distance element to it. And it I've never really done too well with that, but I was like, so, so rapturous that finally, like this person that I've been wanting to be with for so long, I'm with them. And I totally allowed that to like, totally shift me completely out of who I am and got all like worried that I was going to mess it up and I was going to lose her and the distance was going to rip us apart. And, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's hard to have a long distance relationship as it is because you're always kind of wondering what are they doing over there? And all those yeah. stupid thoughts like come into your head. And so, yeah, eventually it did completely break apart. And when we did split it was mutual. And I remember how free I felt all of a sudden, like it was like, it was like this massive weight had just been lifted off of me and I didn't feel crushed. I felt like alleviated and mm-hmm. I was like, holy cow, I I have never felt that disconnected from who I am that at the end of a relationship, I felt better. And mm-hmm. I'm like, never again. I am never allowing myself to tailspin like that ever again. And I didn't jump into a relationship for... It was probably like about two and a half years. And 
within that time, I had like this big spiritual awakening and started meditating and really kind of having a practice in place where I was able to connect with who I am and to live my life from that place versus constantly trying to reach and grab for some form of security or uh, that kind of thing. And so I was, personally, I was way healthier going into my next relationship. And actually recently, within the last couple of years, realized that my whole relationship with Erica, I've had kind of a wall up in, in a certain capacity where uh, that had served me well for the first few years of our relationship, so I wouldn't kind of tailspin like that. But over the last few years, I've realized that actually doesn't serve me anymore because <laughs> I still have like this wall that is inhibiting our relationship from going to that next level. And so I've been really trying to dismantle that now that I know that I can take care of myself. It was like after that relationship, my psyche was, all right, if you're all for that, let's do it. And this wall went up that I didn't even really realize went up. And it's been like a kind of a self-defense mechanism in some regards of not allowing myself to get that close, but still close enough to where I can have a relationship with someone. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but. Well, intimacy is a delicate dance. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can relate to that, uh, the self-protective mechanisms. So did that answer your question? Yeah, no, it's okay. great. I, I was just, it sounds like you did a lot of inner development work and that helped you figure out how to not lose yourself. Yeah. And the thing that was amazing too, was at that time, uh, I'd always been, I don't know, I've never had like a great success rate in like having girls like look my way. And so when they would finally, it was like, oh, I have to, I have to do this because I don't know when this will ever happen again. Scarcity um, mentality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, but I've always been like a feeler. So if it didn't feel right, then obviously I wouldn't do it. But um, if the connection was there, then I definitely just went all in. Uh, but during that time, when that two and a half years, I had a few few women that would come into my life, and we kind of felt it out a little bit, but it never went anywhere. And so, for the first time in my life, I was able to go, "Well, this is okay, but it's not. It doesn't feel like where my heart is set." And mm -hmm. so, I would kind of try to gracefully bow out of that and. I, I still kept myself open for I'm in a great place of finally loving myself. And if somebody is to come into the circle, it's going to have to feel fully like meant to be or like it's supposed to it's going to have to feel right on every level. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I also have a history of being kind of like the, the master at yes, I'm a yes woman to the extent that when I was younger, if a guy asked for my phone number when I was out, it didn't occur to me to say no, or even give him a fake number if I wasn't interested. Just, yes, here's my number. <laughs> and then if he kept pursuing, I might end up dating this guy that I have absolutely no interest in because I didn't know how to say no. 
And I'm not sure that it was all about the scarcity mentality for me and more about my own self-assertion. So as we're talking about the masculine in relation to this dream and this relationship that I had, all of those are elements at play. My own relationship to my masculine, you know, boundaries. Mm-hmm. Where do I end? Where's my limit? Um, and assertion and, and aggression and all of that. Um, I suppose by the time I met this particular ex, I had probably rejected a few, you know, come-ons from other men. Um, but it still was not my strong suit. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, do we want to finally jump into this dream? Yeah. So the dream uh, was in March of 2016. And this was about six months into living with my ex. And things had already escalated to a level of name calling and fighting, but I was so twisted into it that I was believing that I was partly to blame, that I was engaging in, in the dynamics. So it couldn't, you know, couldn't be just his problem. It was our problem to resolve. So March of 2016, I, uh, I dream one night. Here's the dream. I'm teaching magic to a crowd of people, and this is my profession, something that I offer. I'm a magic teacher, and I'm showing this crowd how to bend spoons with their mind. So we're working on mind control. We're working on intention, outcome. We're working on manipulating matter and just playing with it. So I'm just demonstrating and showing them how simple it can be. And as I'm working on bending the spoon, suddenly the spoon turns into a stainless steel milk jug. And I'm surprised at my own ability. I wasn't expecting to totally change the form of the spoon into something else. So I'm now in awe, along with the rest of the crowd watching. And one of my best friends is there with me and we're looking at this milk jug and we give each other a look as if to say, that doesn't seem safe somehow. And I decide in that moment, I'm going to shift it back into the shape of the spoon because something's just feeling off about it. But before I'm able to shift that milk jug back into a spoon, a woman in the audience discovers her own magic and uses it to shrink herself down so she can fly into the bottle. She does this all just in in a second of time, and then she's stuck. My friend and I are looking down at her, and again, we're sort of sharing a, a psychic experience, shared experience of being afraid for her and also being a little bit jealous of her. How did she do that? And now she's in there, She doesn't have to deal with what's out here. But the danger feels a little bit stronger. So I'm encouraging her to come out. Saying, come on, you've got to come out of there. It's not safe for you in there. Please come out so I can change it back. And she simply responds, I can't come out. He doesn't want me to. And that's the end of the dream. Wow. 
first time I, I had read that dream when you sent it over that last line just like made me gasp. <laughs> it's like, ooh. He doesn't want me to. Yeah. 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 So there's a there's an obvious analysis for me there, uh, self analysis. Mm-hmm. I'm not willing to do anything that he doesn't want me to do. Right. Right. I'm not willing to make a choice that goes against what he wants. And that could be the parentheses sentence in between the story of my life up until this dream, but in some ways as something that still plays out now, it's a very deeply programmed as a Midwestern woman, um, based on some aspects of my ancestry that I'm aware of. And as an American woman to obey the men, to please the men, to make sure the men are happy because that's a way of ensuring that you're safe and you're taken care of. Yeah. And, you know, it's not that long ago in our history that that was just the truth. A woman couldn't do much on her own without a man by her side. Yeah. That's, that's huge. Cause it almost makes it more of a collective statement than just a personal one for you. It's, it goes so much deeper into ancestry and, just uh culture and yeah that's it's a doozy yeah yeah I, I work mostly with women um then and i find this to just be a, a true theme across the board there are ways that we shrink ourselves down to fit the mold of what the men who have power in our lives want and it it's You know, it's not always, this isn't to attack men in any way because it isn't even about um, men who abuse power, like my ex. This is about good men who want good things for the women in their lives and the women's inability sometimes to see beyond what, what the man wants, what he desires, into, okay, it seems good and it's good intention, but is it really good for me? Right. Yeah, being uh, very involved with a Midwestern woman myself, I, I know how that plays out in her as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a pretty vivid understanding of what you're saying here. I think to look at this dream first, I really like the way how it relates the work that you do is like magical power mm-hmm. because I think it's super appropriate. And I mean, doing dream work and therapeutic work like you do, it is, it is like a, a magical power that has total potential to transform people's lives and to, uh, drastically redefine who they are and how they show up in the world. And so is there anything else that you want to comment about that piece that touches you in a certain way that either validates or affirms you and your work? And Well, I appreciate you saying that, Steve. Um, I hadn't, I hadn't, I guess, paid that much attention to connecting that detail, but you're right. My work in the dream is, 
magical transformation. I'm transforming one item into another with my mind. And I think that is a great piece of imagery for what therapeutic work is. There is no logical, straightforward, step-by-step process that will work regardless, you know, if you apply it right. It is very intuitive um, and, and based in, you know, the more magic qualities of the mind, the, the ability of the mind to shift. Right. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, and it kind of creates this contrast between, because you obviously identify with yourself as the teacher in this dream, but also as the woman who shrinks herself down. So there's this incredible contrast and play on power and powerlessness. Mm. And yeah. it's, how, how do you, how do you look at that, that kind of, uh, that play between the two of them? Yeah. Well, one thing that comes to mind in a broad context is the idea of the master or the guru or the teacher um, and and the pedestals that we put each other on. So it's, it is the idea that the, the teacher's fallible. Um, the powerful can be powerless. Mm. The teacher must be the student. The teacher absolutely must be the student. You cannot be a teacher without being a student. So as that level, as the levels of expression develop, right, as I step into more power in my work in the world, then I seem to invite in more experience that informs the the depth of that power. So it shows me the, the broad range of experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is only through being powerless sometimes that we realize how much power we truly have. I like that. Yeah, that resonates really well for me. And I feel like it also, the more power we're able to hold, the more uh, responsibility we have for holding it. And I think there's an interesting look here at, especially the way that you tell the story that you were kind of going against your own better judgment. And so it almost seems like that that's almost seen in the way that the power kind of gets away from you a little bit in the dream where like all of a sudden like things are happening beyond your control and you're like, Oh shoot, (laughs) maybe we should turn that back into a spoon uh, before things get too out of hand here. It almost feels like uh, if you're not, if how, how do I say this? I don't want it to be like a shunning thing that I'm saying here. Uh, yeah, I feel like there's something in what you're getting at is about being mindful of, I don't know if it's the limits of power, uh, but the, the responsibility that comes with the power of magic, the power of creation, the power to create your life. Right. Yeah, so maybe in some in some capacity, you going against that power that you had cultivated so well and was going so well for you, 
and then kind of turning your back on it, it it could create just a mess of your life if you're not if you're not continuing to honor it as it's coming through and what it's suggesting you, even if you don't particularly like what it's telling you. I mean, how many times have you had to deal with a, an offering from life that isn't what you want? Oh, all the time. I'm guessing the listeners of this podcast will relate to that, right? Yeah. And so it's sometimes feels easier to deny or to lie to myself about the right path because the one that's aligned with me, it just, it's too challenging. It's too difficult. It's too boring. It's too whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that I live my life best when I can relax into the path as it unfolds and really appreciate each step and what, I'm surrounded by in the moment. All right. So if we stay with the the contrast between power and powerlessness um, and you being the teacher and also the woman in the bottle, how, how do you hold both of those realities, I guess? Yeah. At, at the time, it was a challenge to hold both of those realities. I knew that this was an important dream. And I also was waking up to the fact that the dynamics of the relationship I was in were dangerous and toxic and that I knew better. And so being the, the wise observer, the teacher, the producer of magic is the part of me that knows better, knows how to trust knows how to you know take action knows how to create actually something that i want but the girl in the bottle uh was also me drinking heavily during that time which you may or may not know has a tendency to cut into intuition mm. and to, to confuse the messages that are trying to come through and i had to hold both spaces um i i had to see myself exactly where I was. I was both stuck and this having this amazing ability to move with magic through my life. And I knew that both were true. Um, I, I would say that dream kickstarted the motion that I needed to exit that relationship. Right. And it was both the girl in the bottle and the wise teacher essentially walking hand in hand every step of the way. So I, I couldn't ignore the part of me that was stuck and I could no longer quiet the mind of the teacher. Oh, I love that. That's such great imagery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the girl in the bottle, I have to say, as I worked in this dream was afraid to come out. She was afraid of how big the world outside the bottle is and whether or not she would, you know, find her place in it or be safe in it, mm -hmm. which is fascinating, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, the fact that the container is like stainless steel to me, it felt kind of significant is it, it probably at once feels 
very cold and alone, but in some regards safe in like a weird way. Mm, sheltered. Maybe, yeah. Or, or I, don't, I mean, that's just me kind of associating with it, but maybe, maybe that's not the case. Maybe it feels more like <laughs> kind of like a cage that you're stuck in. And... Yeah, I could say it feels like it, it, for me, the image is like a false paradise, you know, mm. where suddenly you wake up and you realize the leaves are plastic and there's, there is nothing delicious to drink in that glass or whatever. Um, so that illusion. Right. Sort of like being in a cage that you don't know you're in until yes. you suddenly realize it. And then it's so, it's like twilight zone all of a sudden. Right. Oh man. Do you have any associations to why it transformed into a milk jug out of all different kind of containers it could have? Because it could have showed up as stereotypical, like, alcohol bottle of some sort. You know, I the milk jug makes me think of nurturing. That's the, the one association, right? It's like the mother's milk or the cow's milk or mm -hmm. nurturing, growing. Um and it also was was enough of a play on the imagery. I don't know. This dream seemed to play between subtleties and direct hits. So the the stainless steel milk jug was a subtlety because it didn't it didn't say vodka or wine or whatever. And yet, when I read the dream back to myself about a month after I had it. That was when the recognition hit me, the girl in the bottle. Of course, that has been me. I have to stop drinking and get clear to figure this out. Mm. So I think the subtlety of it allowed me to be with the dream even before I was ready for the direct hit of that information, right? The confrontation. I wasn't right. ready for the confrontation at the time. I think the subconscious has a way of delivering things just as they need to be delivered. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It kind of softens certain aspects until you're ready to like really dive into it. Yeah. It like gives you enough to where it kind of like makes you go, what is that all about? And you kind of like sit on it for a little bit and then you come back and you're like, whoa, how did I not like instantly <laughs> pick that up? Yeah, so the dream seems really, really obvious to me, given the context of my life at the time, when I look at it now. The day after I had it, I wrote it down, I forgot about it. It seemed so insignificant that I didn't give it a second thought after I wrote it down. Like, hmm. significant enough to write it down, but not to do any kind of work with it. So it was one that I came back to. And I've come back to many times. Um, because there's, you know, still continues to give its wisdom. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like, uh, oftentimes even seasoned dream workers like ourselves, like you'll have like a, a dream like that and you'll kind of go, eh. <laughs> I'll just conveniently kind of look by this dream and Seems like there's something there, but it's not instantly jumping out. So I'll kind of sit on it for a little bit. Yeah. The, or there's something there that I just don't want to talk about right now. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I think we all, we all go there for sure. Mm. My only associations with the milk jug, because I don't think in your original write-up of that dream, you specified it was a milk jug. I think you just wrote that it was a stainless steel container. I've had quite a few dreams with cows in the past, and there is like an ancestral component to that for me, because a lot of my ancestry on my father's side were dairy farmers. Mm. And the way that they showed up in the dream was like, you know, like cows were being mutilated or they were like zombies and uh, a lot of these kind of like hard images. And to me, the cow, when I was looking up information on them, it was like a big symbol of nurturance and, I've I've done a lot of work with the victim archetype, which I think would probably insert itself pretty well into this conversation, being yeah. a contrast of power and powerlessness. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the cow shows up in those contexts to show me kind of like where, like especially in the one where it was zombies, it was like cows being led down into this cave where they turn into zombies. And the cave was like, there were like bones of cows on, on the floor as I walked down and through there. And it was like this lost zone within my soul of like a place where there was like no nurturance. Mm. And it was almost like the cave of the victim almost. And so f for me, looking at that, all of a sudden finding out that that was a milk jug, it just kind of brought back all that imagery for me where it almost seems like it's it's a stainless steel milk jug which feels very like cold and since it's empty and there's like no nurturing value in it but at the same time the symbol once you do finally find the power to get yourself out of there the wisdom that you you now hold and the power that you now hold getting out of that situation that milk jug is now kind of a vessel of more personal power and self-worth and all those great qualities that would come with uh, finally standing up and, you know, facing that uncomfortable situation to really get yourself out of there, in, in my opinion, looking at that. Yeah, I think one of the biggest gifts for sure of the dream and the context of it is the recognition of what it feels like to shrink myself down to the smallest I can possibly be in order to fit somewhere. So that is gift number one. I know exactly what it feels like mm -hmm. as I start to shrink. And it doesn't mean I always take action right away, but I, you know, there's, there's an opportunity and an invitation to adjust or to figure it out. And the the second piece is that I know how to get to a place where I can commit to myself to do whatever it takes to take care of me or to, to take care of business, whatever that business is. That I can, it's like the, the teacher and the girl in the bottle as parts of me, I can count on her. I can count on me to figure it out.
Is there anything else you want to say about the relationship and maybe like a message to women who maybe are going through a, a similar situation that you had been in? Mm-hmm. Sure, and I could do a whole podcast on that messaging. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say reach out for support. It, it would be the top thing. If, if you are in something that you know is damaging, you know it's dangerous, uh, the best thing that you can offer yourself is someone who understands and maybe who's been there, somebody who can navigate that. Um, and please, please, please try to be compassionate with yourself. I think what I see so often with clients and friends and other women who've been through this is a tendency to really, like, I'm going to blame myself for being stupid. And that's part of the cycle of abuse that's happening in the relationship in the first place. Then, then the whole relationship also becomes your fault. And that's not helpful. It. I think it actually doesn't matter if it's your fault or not. That's not helpful. So having revisited this relationship, this ex of mine and the, the toxicity involved in it, I want to acknowledge that you are one of the men in my life that I've met, and I've met several, who are, you're, from what I can tell, you're doing the work to address the impact of toxic masculinity, like the wounded warrior expression in, in the man. And I'm always curious to hear a little bit more about that. Um, to offer up that, I mean, to anybody listening, that there there is a dark side and there is danger, and there's also a ton of beauty in the sacred masculine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's been a, a large bulk of the work that my dreams have have asked of me, and I've always been kind of I've always been a real good guy when it comes down to it. I, I have my own demons, and they come out in in certain ways that <laughs> I I don't particularly want them to. Obviously, I'm a human being, but. Uh, It's been amazing, like, the kind of work that has been asked of me through dreams. And, like, early on before I had any kind of, like, spiritual awakening, but my dreams were something that I was very invested in. Uh, The first thing that they really were prodding at was my anger issues, because I've always been kind of like a... I've always been a bottler, and so when I finally blow, it's kind of scary... And I'm never kind of like how you described your partner. I've never been like verbally abusive to people, but my anger has always been kind of a destructive force in my life where I I don't always direct it at other people, but I'll blow up and I'll walk away and I'll, I'll carry on like a child. And, um, so I've never hit anybody. I've never called anybody I've ever dated a bitch or a whore or, any of those awful words that it seems like guys are so loose with. Um, never cheated on a woman. Uh, so in that regards, I've always come across as a pretty nice guy. Um, it was very interesting when I really started doing my shadow work that, well, 
when I when the shadow work switched into kind of doing more of the work with the anima, uh, that was very telling to how my relationship is with my inner feminine. And where as a creative person who is very deep into music and his spiritual practices and that kind of feminine quality to certain things, I always felt like I had a pretty good relationship with the feminine. But it was very interesting as uh, the dreams started coming that were showing me how toxic my relationship is with that part of myself was just like, are you serious? Like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> with the feminine part? Is that what you mean? Yeah, like uh, with, with the anima. So for anybody who's listening who doesn't know what the anima is, it's an archetype. Uh, Carl Jung coined it as kind of like the soul of a man, and it, it typically shows up in, our, in a man's dreams as a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and so through relational experiences in your dreams you can see what your relationship is like with her and so she's kind of like a man's source of his creativity and his femininity and all of the great qualities that are typically associated with femininity and essentially my understanding is it's kind of like all the aspects that a man would seek to marry within himself. So it appears as this woman, uh, I know I'm probably going to get in trouble with gender here, but, uh, that's how it, that's, I'll, I'll just speak from my own personal experience. So she appears as a woman for me. And so like, let me give you an example here. So my whole life I've, I've really struggled with self-worth and with, really showing up for myself. I've always been kind of a pushover and a floor mat, and I've just allowed people to walk all over me my entire life. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I moved so much as a kid. Uh, By the time I was 12 years old, I lived in five different states and uh, been to like four or five different elementary schools. And so it became like a... a self-defense mechanism to be more of like a people pleaser because that's how I could quickly get new friends and I could avoid the uncomfortable experience of being the new kid and being the outcast and having nobody in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've, I have a very easy personality to get along with, which helps. And then just being <laughs> kind of a people pleaser that helped me get my foot in with groups of of friends that were already established. But it obviously, throughout the course of my life, didn't always serve me, and it kind of made me a pushover, and I have all kinds of emotional scarring from wanting to tailor myself too fully to other people and forgetting about who I am. And... So it created this massive divide and the way that I, that seems to show up in my relation to the anima is that she feels completely unsafe within me because at any moment I would readily choose the external world and the validation that that could give me over facilitating the own, my own validation of who I am as a person, as a man and as this beautiful soul that is inside of me. And so 
one dream in particular that I'm thinking of uh, was a dream where it was my first look at the saboteur energy. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing a lot of work with like these four archetypes that Caroline Miss um, talks about, which are like your survival, your survival archetypes, which are the victim, uh, the child, the prostitute and the saboteur. And I could readily see how the other three archetypes, the victim, the prostitute and the child would work in my life as far as like keeping me safe. And so the child, you're, you're obviously, you're clinging to what, you know, um, you're not moving outside of your comfort zone. You're not leaving the care of mom and dad, um, to be independent. Uh, and then the prostitute, you kind of like, there's a price as far as like what you're willing to do or not do to sell your soul, essentially. I think even being a people pleaser. Yeah, absolutely. And that definitely plays into that for sure. Uh, so then the saboteur kind of evaded me for a long time. I was like, well, you know, obviously see how I sabotage myself in certain situations, but like the whole realization of how that archetype operates within me hadn't quite appeared yet. And I had this incredibly hard dream where I'm in this very dark dreamscape and there's like a helicopter whirling over overhead and this woman just comes just running hurtling at me and just throws herself at me. And she's like, you have to save me. They're going to get me. They're going to kill me. And I'm like, what the heck is happening? <laughs> and it all of a sudden becomes very aware that the people in the helicopter above me are coming after her. And I realized that I think there was a notion in the dream that one of the characters was the saboteur. I think I was given that notion to help me finally click the dots there. And uh, one of the people in the helicopter was understood to be a friend of mine that I had in middle school named Dave. And Dave later turned into another friend of mine that I had later on in life. And so when I was piecing this, this dream apart, I was like, this woman's terrified for her life. And the saboteur had something to do with it. And as I was looking at Dave, I'm like, well, as soon as we got to high school, Dave just completely ghosted on me. I'm like, if he's supposed to be kind of the saboteur, then all of a sudden, like, it was kind of like there was like this. Uh, it, what I'm hearing, I don't know if this is where you were going or not, but it's almost like you ghosted on yourself. You know, you ghosted right. on your own feminine self. And you prostituted her out to ensure that you would survive. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in, in the end, she's in danger. Like the way that things have been going caused her to be a victim. Right. Absolutely. And uh, so I guess that's where I was trying to go with it was uh, the way that Caroline Miss explains the saboteur is that's kind of like the energy of choice. And so you either make choices that serve you or you make choices that um, harm you. And uh, that, that aspect of having a choice can be a sabotaging mechanism that kind of uh either makes or breaks your life and so in this dream it's like i had been constantly making a choice to turn my back on my own soul 
um, just to just to appease other people and to you know kind of win over their their validation or whatnot and now it's clicking that dave that's exactly what he did to me in middle school was that he he dropped me because he came across a couple of people that were like a year or two older than us who seemed to take them under take him under their wing and he just dropped me mm-hmm. and I was like so so broken up about it for a while there because I was like he was like my best friend. We talked every day. He was at my house every weekend and um, blah da da da. Painful. And then it was funny because then he transforms into this other guy uh, that I've uh, I've been pretty good friends with for the last like ten years or so, and he's like a very spiritual person. And so I had to laugh when it made that connection. It was like even when I became a very spiritual person, I still, still did the same thing. And I I was like, I had, I had no balls at that point because to be a spiritual man, you're supposed to be ultra feminine and you're supposed to not utilize any of your warrior energy. And you're supposed to be this kind of (laughs) soft, uh, non-confrontational guy. Um, and so it was like it was just poking at that too. It was like you're still you're still turning your back on your inner feminine because you're you're not allowing yourself to to own that warrior energy enough to create that boundary where you don't need to people please anymore and you just take care of her and you don't you don't try to <laughs> you're still turning your back on yourself because you're still not standing up for yourself. You're still not owning who you are, even as yeah. a spiritual person who thinks he's, he's actually learned something. So that was like such a wild dream to have because it was like, Holy cow. Like if that's really the experience she's having inside of me, like that definitely has to change right now. Yeah. Was, did that dream kind of launch you into some changes? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think by the, by that point when I had that dream, I think I was already beginning to to do those changes, but I hadn't quite understand that the situation was at that level that there really was that it really had to depict it in that capacity that she was seriously in fear for her life, like constantly. And oh, that was the worst part about the dream too. Was uh. I think, I wish I would have reviewed this dream. Um, I can't remember if the helicopter was somehow blown out of the sky or like there was something that I did to to get them to leave. But there was this fear that even though they were dead, yeah, I'm pretty sure the helicopter had somehow crashed. And there was this lingering feeling in the dream that at any moment they could somehow come back. So it was like this awful feeling that, all right, you know about this now. It's become pretty crystal clear to you. But if you're not going to do the work and you're not going to really kind of take honor, take ownership of the situation at any moment, these these assholes could come back and she could <laughs> be right back to where she was and in fear for her life. Yeah. And so it was kind of like the dream was like being like this is this is your duty now like if you don't do this work if you don't show up for her now like this fear is not going to go away um, 
So yeah, pretty, pretty intense. I think um, I find it very fascinating that you started out talking about how your anger can get out of control. And, and maybe that's a, a response to having repressed your anima and, and mistreated her. Um, and I, as a woman, I've had the opposite experience of being so uncomfortable with any level of anger that it's been impossible at times to develop a boundary. Mm, Interesting. Right. It is the indication that either you're projecting something on someone or somebody has violated a boundary. Somebody has uh, assaulted your line, right? What you're okay with. Mm. Um, So yeah, I've, I had a, a different, just, just briefly, I had a different development of dreams um, that were angry, abusive men showing up in my dreams. And that over time uh, has become me standing up to angry, abusive men in my dreams. Nice. It's just freezing. Um, so I, I think it could be a very fascinating discussion to talk you know, in a group of men and women about our experiences of masculinity and the development of that energy when we've, we've not been given a solid, healthy model in this culture. So we're having to find our way in the dark. Yeah, that would be a fantastic conversation. Do you have any dreams in particular that you remember from that time that you could share quickly? Um, well, one that was really interesting because it was a little cartoonish. Um, there were these little boys in like a daycare center. I mean, little, like three years old, but they, you know, they kind of looked like eggheads or Oompa Loompas or something that was cartoonish, not human. Mm-hmm. And these, these little tiny boys were throwing fits of rage at each other. And it was, it was almost comical. And that was one of the dreams that I had that I feel like it was symbolizing a a transition from me being stalked or chased or yelled at, uh, me being assaulted, essentially, by aggression or anger, to me experiencing it as something kind of absurd or funny, something I could distance from a little bit. Just watching these little little children throw (laughs) fits. really kind of getting into the early stages of aggression in our development. Yeah. So part of my rebirth in, in my own relationship to anger. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. That's a fun one. yeah since we're, we're on the anger issue, I'll tell you, uh, yeah, I had just like a, um, a lot of dreams that were just like, tr- like they were like trigger dreams. And like, it was like the dream would just poke at something real soft. And then the dream, I would just puke all over whatever the situation was. I don't have any ones in particular that I can really drum up, but something that was interesting that was happening in my lucid dreaming around that same time was that I had a series of lucid dreams where as soon as I would become lucid, like a character would just start talking and they wouldn't shut up. And it was just like stream of consciousness and just like completely absurd things. And it made no sense. And it would actually like, it was almost so 
such a cacophony of of speech that it would like take over my brain in the dream and cause me to just like completely lose my mind. <laughs> And then I would just like snap on the person. Uh, one of the one time it was my father, and just completely uh, just went off on him and tried to like vanquish him from the dream. And another time, uh, it was like uh, one of my best friends who who symbolizes the victim archetype for me pretty well because he's he's kind of one of those people that always has something awful that's happening and can't ever get around it and so he's in the dream and he's just jabber 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 and i think i even lucidly created like a trap door in the floor and stuffed him in it and shut it and tried to lock it and i could still hear him talking and it drove me so mad and i woke up and it was almost like so many people think lucid dreaming is like all about them controlling the dream and like you go in there and oh you can do anything you want. Um, but my experience with lucid dreams is kind of yeah, I've had dreams like that where I could kind of go in and putz around and be a complete idiot and do the most absurd egotistical things I could ever want. Uh but lucid dreams have expected a certain level of uh kind of integrity and kind of uh authenticity for me because I, I think they want to use me for something bigger mm-hmm. and uh it was almost like me going in the dream thinking i'm going to do what i want the dream was like nope there's an anger issue that you're still not facing bro uh <laughs> you're gonna work on that. yeah that's what we're here to work on so yeah you're going to have to look at this so vividly and you're going to have to wake up super disappointed that you wasted yet another lucid dream to being a freaking complete psychopath. And you're going to have to sit there and grapple with all the feelings that that brings up and how you're going to maybe try to tread a little bit lighter on that space the next time you're there. And so, yeah, it was like, it was pretty wild, and eventually I did have a, a lucid dream where that happened, and I did kind of overcome it in in probably the capacity that I would be capable of at that time. I think they would have asked a little bit more of me now, um, but I had the same kind of situation happened, and the guy's just talking, 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 and instead of like getting furious, I just turned around and very gently was like, uh yeah that's cool man uh but i don't know if you can fly but i can and i just jumped in the air and flew away (laughs) and i was like laughing myself pat myself on the back like yeah that actually worked out way better than the other times and then i look back and he's actually flying through the sky after me still talking and i'm like ah come on and but i don't think i had another dream like that after that You did something different. Yeah. So I think I think it at least showed that I was that I was learning or I was trying to to learn. <laughs> trying to find a way to to not have that same ex- experience compete or repeat and repeat and repeat. Yeah. Yeah. And I love what you said, Steve, about, you know, doing what the dream is asking of. And I think that seems to be the concept behind this project is 
looking at the big dreams and what they're asking of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that when I live my life that way, and this is not to say that I respond to every single dream that I have because I, I don't, but when one catches my attention, if I pause and get into the, the ask, you know, what is the big ask here? What is being asked of me to stay in alignment with my soul, with my life? Um, things turn out in ways that I could have never predicted. You know, there's just tremendous growth and opening and connection. So it's, it's not the easy path, but it's the right path for me. And I appreciate you taking the time to explore this and put this out there into the world. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for saying all that. That means a lot. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's definitely been, I mean, doing shadow work is hard. It asks everything of you every step of the way because it's constantly trying to expand your container for yourself and for uh, just being able to hold more space for all of the aspects of yourself and the the myriad relationships that we have to certain aspects of ourselves and I think one of the challenging aspects of it is that we're still just this little ego and to be able to grapple with the immense amount of relationships and archetypal aspects of our soul that we have it's it's hard to get them all right and i don't i don't know if you necessarily do get them all right but um there's always growth to be had and there's always a new way of looking at those relationships and ebbing and flowing with them and like for me personally doing this work with that feminine aspect of my soul has been so rewarding and I feel like over the last couple of years, really diving into this work, I have like recaptured so much of that essence. And I really, I really don't know who or how I could have continued on if I didn't have this experience erupt within me the way that it has, because it's just, I mean, it's, it's soulful. It's, it's re, re, recapturing that part of myself that has been kind of locked away and in fear and uh, and that is also so incredibly beautiful and that I want to bring forward into the world I don't want it to be in fear I don't want it to you know I don't I don't want to feel like she's all caged up and haunted and yeah so yeah well thank you so much for having this conversation with me, Aaron, it's been a real blessing to talk with you again and to talk to you on an issue that is is so needed to be had between men and women and between men and men. Uh, so thank you for, for being here with me and sharing your incredible dream and the whole process that it, that it helps kind of erupt within your life. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation, Steve. And uh, again, I think this is such an important project. So thank you for, for putting it out. Masculinity is not inherently toxic. A lot of the toxicity that we 
see visibly in our culture is really just a symptom of a grave trauma that patriarchy has instilled upon men and inflicted upon women. And it has devastated men, even though it seems like patriarchy is in support of men. But how patriarchy worms its way into masculinity is so damaging to men. So incredibly damaging to men that we don't even know we're traumatized by it. Within the last year, I had this amazing dream where I was driving through a city and as I make a turn, my car starts driving in reverse and there had been police that I had just seen and they were looking for a sniper in a building. And as I'm driving reverse down the street, I see the sniper up in the building and you can just feel his anger and his rage, his his capacity for that kind of just violent rage. And I'm terrified because I'm a straight shot for this guy. And so I like duck and roll out of the truck and I run as fast as I can uh, behind the corner of a building so that I can be out of his line of sight. And the dream scene kind of changes at that point, and I'm sitting on a bench now with a bunch of really buff dudes. And as I'm sitting there, this guy comes walking around the corner, sees me, comes up to me, acting all super uh, proud of himself for some kind of... It felt like a female conquest of some sort, like a sexual conquest. And I jump up and I am just not in the mood to have it with this dude right now. And I'm like swinging on him a little bit and trying to swat him with stuff that I can grab. And I think I even said very intensely uh, during this moment, I'm sick of your toxic masculine bullshit. (laughs) And all of a sudden the buff dudes that I was with and like a whole bunch of other dudes show up and they just encircle us. And now it's just me and this dude in the middle of all of these very strong feeling men that are holding this circle very strongly. And it feels like none of them are letting us out until we hash this out with each other. And feeling the gravity of what is happening, I I feel this hush come over me where I had been so adamant about enacting some kind of justice upon this man, which is so true to patriarchy, where, (laughs) you know, might is right. And when you don't like something, you use anger, you use force to change it. And so I soften, and I want to understand why this person feels the way they do. As I start prying into him and being like, come on, man, what what, what the hell is going on inside of you? Like, why do you think this is okay to act like this? He breaks and he cries and he says to me, I just wanted to love her. And it sends chills through my body right now to say that. It was so powerful and profound in the dream. And as I've worked this dream, I realized that this is the wound. 
This is the trauma that patriarchy has given men. Because love and kindness and empathy, it's all weakness. You're seen as weak. You're supposed to guard yourself and be distant and be unemotional. You're supposed to cut yourself off completely from your feeling center. And the word her felt like not only the man's soul, the man's feelings, the, man, the beauty within the man's soul, his ability to love himself deeply, but the women in the world, in his life, the earth herself, all of these feminine aspects of our life that we have been told are weak to give ourselves to, that we are supposed to be strong and we are supposed to dominate our inner world, we're supposed to cut ourselves off from our emotions and dominate them. We're supposed to be better than them and over them. And we're supposed to be better than women and stronger and more capable and more independent in all this bullshit. That we're supposed to put profits before people. And we're supposed to ravage this earth for every resource that we can get our hands on and monetize. Bullshit. We as men need to realize that all we want to do in our heart of hearts is to love her. To show up in this world and to be a protector and not a predator. To be a protector and not an aggressor. To protect our soul and the beauty inside of it and to honor it. To protect the women and the children in our lives and not be aggressive towards them. To not be dismissive or arrogant or just impossible. And to protect this world, this beautiful world that we inhabit, that we just celebrate by destroying it in every way. How can we not see that we are traumatized? How can we not see that we have been led so far astray? And all of these characteristics that are symptoms of this trauma, they are all of the ways that we have attempted to not feel the truth that all we want to do is to love her because we have been so removed from that that the pain of that separation is so severe is our way of coping with this deep brokenness within us where we have been denied the truth that all we want to do is love her that is so devastating has to stop if you want a path back to your own soul to find your way home to her to you follow the path of your dreams you can find your way back to her and heal the damage that has been done come home
wow. Aaron and Stephen lay it all on the line. Their candor and frank self-evaluation is like fresh air. They came through their tribulations with the scars to mark their journey, and they are both better people for it. Pain is a driver of growth. It breaks the inertia that develops when we respond habitually. Pattern behavior is difficult to change, and we often don't make changes until the prospect of more pain is scarier than doing nothing. This is the Saturnian wisdom of the nightmare. It's like re-breaking a bone so that it sets correctly. Dreams, and especially nightmares, take us to the places where we are broken, where we haven't healed. They open the wound, and if we endure the pain, we get the benefit of the medicine. And while it's a myth that broken bones grow back stronger, I think that broken people do. I'm right there with Aaron and Stephen in that regard. The myth of the wounded healer is the guiding myth of my life and theirs. How many times can I break and put myself back together and maybe come back stronger? This is what our dreams ask of us, but we must do the work to make it happen. Carl Jung said that our pain doesn't have to be pointless. Fix our minds on healing with determination to show up every day for ourselves and do the inner work, endure the pain, and stand firm between the opposing forces of conflict, and it prompts the unconscious to produce a symbol that unifies the opposites. He calls it the transcendent function, transcending conflict and getting unstuck. Aaron and Stephen know what I mean, and I bet you do too. Dreamwork is your best way to show up for yourself daily. It's food for the soul. You can learn from our guest, Aaron Amundsen, about the built-in technology of our dreams to guide us to our true path in life. Look her up at naturaldreamtech.com. Stephen is known online as AQ the Dreamwalker, and his music is all over the internet. Music inspired by his dreams that brings healing to hip-hop. And I'm J.M. DeBoard, and I've got an online course for you. It's called Dreaming for Love and Relationships. It teaches how to use dreams to get the love you want in your life. It's at dreamschool.net. Friends, sharing is caring. Please share this podcast and help us spread the word that dreams are meaningful and worth all the time and energy you can give to yours. See you next time.